Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today as we wind up the school year and start looking towards the summer. Um, We have a really good show for you today. I always say that when we open the show because I always think we have a great show for you. If you think this is a great show, I'm going to put in my weekly plug for reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to get more people aware or make more people aware of the podcast. And so if you have time to go on there and give us a review, I would appreciate it. Um, We're going to be talking about rising interest rates and how that might be impacting your plans for paying for college. And we're also going to be talking about recommendation letters um, because now is actually a really good time to ask for them if you are a junior. Um, But we're going to talk a little more about that later. First, I mentioned that we are winding down the school year and approaching summer. So what better thing to talk about than summer plans? Um, And joining me for that is my colleague, Tova Javits, who is a former admissions officer at Barnard, Fordham, and Montclair State. And Tova, I almost just uh, completely biffed on your last name because (laughs) I have your old one written here. So Tova also just got married. So congratulations to you. Thank you. If it makes you feel any better, I introduce myself wrong about four times a day. So Okay. We're we're learning together. All right. Sounds good. I just, I I looked at the written word and I thought that is not her name anymore. (laughs) So, well, here's my first question for you. It is, um, when this airs, it will be May 19th. Um, Is it too late to make summer plans? Not at all. Not at all. It also depends where you are in the country. May 19th, where I live in Southeast Georgia, my kids will have been out of school already for almost a week. Summer will mm-hmm. be in full swing, which is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. But I think in plenty of parts of the country, you still have a full month left where school isn't getting out until end of June, right? In uh, mm-hmm. the Northeast, I think. So there is plenty of time left to still figure out some wonderfully fulfilling, engaging way to spend your summer months. Yeah, I, so I, w- I did a segment on summer planning way back in January with Landis, and we talked about how it wasn't too early at that point. I'm here to tell our listeners, honestly, more of the interesting things are still available for students to do this summer. And, you know, the things that the opportunities that have really passed most people by are the formal organized programs most of which are fine. They can be good ways to spend your summer, but aren't necessarily always the most exciting from an admissions point of view. So I'm actually excited we're talking about this today because I really feel like more interesting opportunities might be available to students who have waited up until this point to think about their summer. Right, especially as their interests have evolved over the last number of months, they may have a better sense of what they want to dive into more deeply where had you asked them six months ago, they would have shrugged and said, oh, (laughs) there's plenty of time for those creative students to say, huh, what do I want to do? And what could I do? Right. And probably there are still plenty of students who are saying, well, I don't know. So, I mean, my go-to literally for almost every student I work with is how about a job? What is your thought on a summer job? 
I think everywhere I turn as a as a consumer where I live is I'm seeing help wanted signs. You can't go to a restaurant without waiting a long time for service because they all need more servers. Uh, grocery stores need more employees. Everyone I know who owns a small business is struggling to get help. Get a job. <laughs> There's so many great ways to build your life skills, your life lessons, earn a little bit of money. And the life experience that comes from a job, and we can talk about what that can look like, is limitless. So mm -hmm. I, that's always my go-to also. Yeah, I, I worked every summer when I was in high school. Um, my son has now had a job since uh, starting last summer. Um, he actually had one all during the school year, the previous year. Uh, I think a job is great. And I also think that sometimes for students shooting for the most selective schools, it is the thing that is the most overlooked. Yeah. Um, I frequently find that those students have been so focused on academic things and doing those things with their summers that to actually have a job makes that student a little bit more unique than some yeah. of the other students in those applicant pools. Work for a summer as a waitress and you have some life skills that will serve you well at any elite college. I would agree. I, you know, some parameters that I would put out there for a job, um, really for me, it's less about what you do, but more about how you do it. And so you know, if you're going to get a job and you're going to work 10 hours a week scooping ice cream, that's fine. Is that a summer? I don't know. That leaves you an awful lot of time to do nothing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my perspective is if you're going to work a summer job, I think a minimum of 20 hours a week. And ideally, if it's a full time opportunity, that to me would be the most impressive. Um, I'm curious if you have thoughts around that piece of it, or if there were any jobs you remember students doing from your time in admissions that kind of struck you as interesting or compelling? Oh, both questions I have thoughts on. So first, in terms of time, uh, our students are so scheduled back there, so overscheduled. Mm -hmm. And even if it is a 40 hour a week full-time job, I want then for the student to have a little bit of time before the job begins and a little bit of time before the job ends. And, you know, have downtime in the evenings so that there is still some time for rest and relaxation in the summer. I know you're not suggesting that's not allowed at all. Right. But, you know, it, 10 hours a week, probably not quite enough to fill your time. 40 hours a week is a lot. And I do want students to spend some time over the summer recharging their batteries. Um, so balance, like everything we say in this world, is key. Finding that balance that's right for you. Gosh, some of the fun, coolest summer jobs are just like what you said, the not prepackaged obvious ones. The, the time that student was working at a farm, cleaning out horse cages and milking cows uh, at, a, at a, a small neighborhood farm that didn't have all the infrastructure to do it mechanically. Um, the, I know a student who this summer is getting paid in pennies, essentially. I think they're going to cover their daily lunch, mm -hmm. um, but they're going to help out on a construction site so that he can shadow basically the, the manager who's at this development site and learn a little bit about construction management in terms of, gosh, how do you develop an entire new neighborhood from building and paving the roads, laying the pipes to actually building the houses and what goes in there. He's going to do a lot of grunt work and work pretty darn hard this summer, but is going to learn a lot about how to actually take that from zero to full and completion. So 
this really comes down to what do you want to learn more about? Who needs help? And are you maybe willing to work for free, work for lunch, work for the experience? Uh, you know, this is where we get blurry lines between what's an internship, I'm using air quotes for those of you just listening, <laughs> versus what's an actual job. And you know, is, is there such a difference between the two? Well, I think that's a really good point. Is there a difference? I, I love the construction piece that you're describing um, because the student will actually be doing some construction, but there's so many different applications. Is he learning some civil engineering? Is he learning urban planning? You know, is he just simply learning how to run a business? If he's paying attention, he could learn about all of those things. And that's kind of fascinating. I think you could extend that to working in a grocery store. You know, yes, maybe you're working as a cashier up front. You're learning about customer service. You're learning about stock. How do you keep, you know, if you're paying attention anyway, how does the, the grocery store make sure that they have enough of what people are going to come looking for on a Saturday morning in the middle of the summer, you know, like, do you have enough watermelon? Do you have enough hamburgers and hot dogs and all of the things that it seems like people stock up on, uh, on a, on a beautiful weekend. Right. And what do you do right now when you have serious supply chain issues and you don't have enough and how do you handle an angry customer who came in to buy that thing that they needed, expecting the grocery store to have it, counting on the grocery store to have it and they don't. And are you the 16 year old as the first line? of defense to have that conversation with with that customer and how does that go? Uh, So there's so many great lessons that you can learn at any any job. And and I think the theme running through this all, um, so far anyway, is making something of what you are doing and and the idea that your activity this summer doesn't have to be super fancy. It can simply be something like you're running, you're helping, you're working for the Y and they have a local kids camp. And so you're a camp counselor. Yeah. And, you know, what does that look like? What can you learn from it? What can you take away from it? Um, and there is nothing wrong with having a job that you sort of think to yourself, this isn't really like a job. I love this. You know, I know plenty of people who were camp counselors That's in high cool. school who thought That's it was great. Life, right. <laughs> Do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I feel that adage is a little, a little iffy. A little lofty. Put, yeah, put forth by someone who probably found something they really did love doing and made a lot of money doing it. And so it feels really great. Like I've never worked a day in my life. Well, that's nice. You do have a really nice house. And I'm guessing there was some work involved there. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think too about, uh, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, kind of like looking around at the jobs that are available, what's needed in your community. Yeah. I could extend that um, out to, I still remember there was a student whose application I read when I was at Penn. So we're going back a few years for her summer. So she had over the course of the second half of her junior year, she took driver's ed like many students her age did at the time. She was so appalled. This is you're going to know when I tell this story why this speaks to me. But she was so appalled by the quality of writing and grammar and punctuation in the driver's ed handbook that she reached out to the DMV in her state and oh said, can I, for free, can I just go through this and copy edit it for you, please? Oh and they God. said, yes. Is that not amazing? That's because awesome. 
I rewrite things all the time in my head. Like I look at a sign and I think, why is that punctuated that way? Why'd they choose that word? What were they thinking? Right. Or a menu. I do the same thing. Right. So I loved, loved, loved that this young woman was like, this is a problem. And then went out and reached out and and fixed it, right. you know, like that's a cool, that is the kind of, now obviously that's a kind of wild example, but it's no, not but so well taken. It's figuring out, well, what, where is their need? And sometimes students come on it by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites is a student I worked with two years ago um, was being honest with herself about just in, in, the, in Georgia, it's hot in the summer, Beth. We don't love always to go outside. It's <laughs> too hot. Middle of the day, people are looking for things to do indoors. And this is like the heat of COVID also. So everyone's mm-hmm. really locked down. And she was um, spending a lot of time on Zoom with her cousin in another country. And um, they were working on makeup together. And this is all building to sound very trite and trivial. They're indoors talking, video chatting, doing makeup together. And walks her cousin's friend, who is unfortunately a victim of an acid burn attack. Mm. Terrible. Yikes. Terrible. Talking. And she, the student I was working with, does this whole makeup tutorial. And 30 minutes some later, there's all this talk of empowerment and strength. Yes, beauty on the inside. How do you make it match on the outside? And it spills into this now weekly series that she was doing for other young women in their community because there was quite a number of similar situations, gets in touch with a local plastic surgeon, and now over the course of the summer has built an online makeup tutorial program with acid burn victims, working with with a surgeon, and created from essentially nothing this really cool, meaningful, impactful program. Ended up writing her essay about it as well. And filled, building it around the weekly sessions, filled so much time doing research, understanding how this happened, got in touch with all these other supporters to find funding. And it it was from just, you know, sitting on Zoom doing makeup with her cousin. And these things can happen when you look for opportunities that are needed. Yeah, I, and I think that's probably the the overarching message um, that, you know, and I know people listen and think, well, you know, I don't have that scenario. Well, of course not. But I bet you do have something that's close to home and it doesn't have to be quite as impactful as that story. I mean, that's an amazing one. But there are little things that you can do that that can occupy your time and also fill a need in your community. And I think that those are some of the things that I would look for. I think as we come to the end of the time that we have, one thing that I would also know, I'm guessing that the person you're talking about who has the construction opportunity, did the family know that person? How did he secure that part? And and this is, this is a good point. It's like, where do you even look? How do you begin? If you don't see a help wanted sign, reach out to your network. This was a friend of a friend's cousin kind of a situation. Sure. Yep. Start with your network, but reach out to a teacher who is running a STEM camp this summer and they and your favorite chem teacher, chemistry or bio teacher needs an extra hand. Sure, I'd love to help. Reach right. out to your teachers, reach out to your parents' friends, reach out to your friends' parents and see who maybe does something in the world you'd like to learn more about, who knows someone who might be able to help out, who has an opportunity for you. Uh, absolutely use your network. Where else? Other than that help wanted sign that you happen to magically pass by when you're walking down the street. Right. So I think we've identified three major things, right? Help wanted. There are jobs everywhere if you're willing to to work. 
looking around yourself at a problem that might exist and figuring out fully on your own and with the help of others, how to fix it, and then using your network and really accessing those people to find opportunities um, to just get involved and do interesting things as you define them. And I think if you spend your summer doing that, then you'll probably have a successful summer. Absolutely. Oh, I love how you summarize that so nicely. (laughs) As you said, what do you put into it? That's what you'll get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So final message to everybody, it is definitely not too late for you to do something with your summer. So get on out there and figure it out. Because um, as soon as you know, you get to July at that point, it is too late. So (laughs) yeah, get it done. (laughs) Exactly. Tova, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are talking about rising interest rates and how that might be impacting your ability to pay for college. Um, So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Alex Bickford, who is a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University, to the show today. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. How's it going? Good, good. We are talking about rising interest rates today. Um, Um. Yeah. So, uh, well, one quick question I have for you. Um, I know we're waiting on some information, just somewhat unrelated to the rising interest rates. Can you tell us what we're waiting for that has not arrived at the moment that we are uh, taping today's podcast? Yeah. So the the T-bill treasury auction is today that will dictate what federal student loan interest rates are for the 2022-2023 school year. So for any loans that are dispersed between July 1st of 22 and June 30th of 23, uh, that information is coming out today. Uh, So I might get it in the next few minutes, but Please, uh, when you are listening to this, it's probably Thursday, if I'm remembering correctly, you can go to our blog. uh, On our blog, we'll have all the new interest rates out there and some quick synopsis on our thoughts on that. We do expect them to be a touch higher uh, than this year. uh, So it does relate to rising interest rates to some degree. Yes, unfortunately, uh, it definitely does. So, uh, yeah, we were hoping we could announce it on air, although uh, this isn't airing for another week. So by the time you hear this, it will be somewhat old news anyway. But hey, if you haven't heard about it and you're thinking about it, if you are a parent like me of a 
current senior and in the coming year you are thinking about borrowing for college or you're already in the middle of borrowing for college, this is going to be important information for you to know about. Um, all right, I'm going to shift gears. I am, as I just mentioned, a parent right. of a senior, right? And um, so rising interest rates, certainly something that I've been paying attention to along with the stock market not being in a particularly great place today and hasn't mm-hmm. been for probably the last four or five days. Um, but he, let's start with this one. You know, does it make more sense to borrow right now or to use my savings? You know, my savings is not where it was. Right. Um, and I'm hoping it's going to rebound. And and I say this for all parents, not really specific to me, although, yes, I'm a little impacted yes. by this. But, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, normally, uh, I'm normally a, a person who says, let's spend what you have when you have it and borrow what you need when you need it. We are in a very different time, it looks like, over the at least right now. And so as we come into next year, I do worry that if the stock market continues to be where it is now, that we're going to be back where we were maybe in 2010, where borrowers were saying, okay, does it make more sense? Uh, can, can I wait on this college savings? So the first thing I would say is, let's look at where your college savings is. Mm-hmm. If your college savings is in a 529 plan uh, and it's in age-based adjustment options and your child's a senior, you might have a little bit of a dip there, but it might not be so astronomical where it would make sense to delay using it and hope to rebound mm-hmm. uh, because you're probably in fairly conservative investments and you might not have a great opportunity to rebound. Now, if you're waiting on your company stock options or things like that that a lot of folks use – Uh, to help pay for college, that's a little bit different of a discussion because those can be hugely impacted because you're in one single unit of something. So what I will say is that while interest rates are rising, they are not, uh, they've been at historic lows for like 10 years. So we're starting to normalize to some degree. They are still not astronomically high. We're not looking at interest rates in the eights and nines and 10% on traditional student loans or or even mortgages. Uh, we're looking at interest rates that are higher than maybe what you would like to see if you're borrowing, but they're not so astronomical that it really is something that I would be hugely concerned about. So I would say depending on where you're invested and how your investment is looking, uh, you might want to explore what the rates you could get are. Uh, now, for each individual, that's going to be different. So I would explore uh, and compare your options. So, okay. So, so really no clear necessarily, no clear answer on, is it better to borrow or to continue or to use your savings? Um, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not for everybody. So if you have, like I said, a five to nine plan, it probably makes sense maybe to use that. And, and let's once again, see how far that gets us. Mm-hmm. If you're in your company stock and your options are worth nothing, well, then, then maybe the only option is to borrow. And right. so we can see what borrowing makes sense for us. So it really depends on what assets you have uh, and whether you can pull from something else. And a lot of families right now are just going to need to borrow. And that's just a fact of the matter. Uh, so it would be how do we minimize the impact? Of right. So so let's talk about that. What are some suggestion you have, su- suggestions you have for minimizing the cost of borrowing itself as interest rates rise? Yeah, so there's maybe two or three options that I consider. The first is if you are able to pay on the loan uh, while the student is in college, even if it's only interest on the loan, 
to be doing that. Uh, so the, the big impact of rising interest rates is when those interest rates, when that interest continues to compound. So if you're borrowing a private student loan, for example, that interest is compounding. So the interest is growing upon interest upon growing upon interest. Uh, and if you're able to pay that while your student is enrolled, well, then that $20,000 loan that you borrowed this year will be $20,000 when your student gets out. And your monthly payment may be a few dollars higher uh, right now. Uh, but it should help that student in the long run uh, with that loan payment. So that would be number one. And just to clarify on that, yeah. so I know when I took out student loans, I didn't start paying on them until I graduated, but interest did not start accruing until that point. So you're talking about different loans that parents would be taking out that are going to start accruing interest as soon as you take the loan out. So either a parent loan that starts accruing interest right away, so that could be a parent plus loan, uh, mm -hmm. or it could be a private student loan that a parent would likely co-sign for a student that they borrow through a private bank or a state-based organization. Okay. Those loans will start accruing interest right away, and some of the student governmental loans will as well. Uh, so depending on where you're borrowing, uh, there are multiple different passes that may have interest accruing right away. Got it. Okay. So for those, the key is try to at least pay off the interest while you're, or pay on the interest while your student is in school. That way you keep the principal amount the same. And when they graduate, it's just less that they're having to pay back. Exactly. Yep. Okay. That's so option one. one. Uh, another, another thing to think about would be, uh, okay, so if interest rates are rising, uh, what are the best ways to minimize my interest rate? And so there are a couple of things to think about there. So if you are paying on loans, many different lenders will have an interest rate reduction uh, if you have automatic payments come out. So if you're looking to do automatic payments, you can get a quarter percent interest rate reduction, a slight benefit uh, to that interest rate. And then loans with more generous interest rates tend to be not only federal loans first, but then also for parents who are looking to borrow above and beyond those federal loans, uh, using a collateral, a piece of collateral, uh, can help get a better interest rate. Generally, the piece of collateral uh, on this type of borrowing tends to be a home. Right. So if you're really concerned about the interest rate uh, and you're not concerned about paying this off over the long term and you're not concerned about your overall financial health or your physical health, borrowing against the home has some really good pros to it, the interest rate. Now, there are plenty of cons to it too, uh, in, in that you're putting your home at risk because you are borrowing against it. Um, but if you're in a fairly good financial position, considering borrowing against your home, those interest rates still tend to be the lowest because there is collateral against it. Right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so those are the two options or do you have a... I've got or... one more and okay. it comes just back to general budgeting. Right. So in this time, in the, and like I said, I was here in 2010 when I was talking about almost the exact same thing. The market's down. Interest rates are a little bit up. What are we going to do? Uh, and the last piece of conversation comes back to you've got to make sure that your student is making really good choices now. Uh, the good choices on where they live on campus, good choices of whether they need to live on campus or not. Uh, good choices on uh, their meal plan and, and good choices on making sure they graduate in four years. And so all of these little things that is a few thousand dollars here and there can really, really add up, especially if you are borrowing uh, to, to pay for that. Uh, so making sure your student understands 
what are good decisions and bad decisions and what decisions they need to consult with their parents on before they make. Uh, right. And that would be a big thing for students who are going into their second year, maybe to look someplace else to live on campus. Uh, that can be a big change from year one to year two. Right. I mean, I'm even thinking about decisions that my son just made when he was committing or paid his deposit and he had to fill out for the meal plan. And we had agreed that he's going to get, he eats a lot. So he's yeah. getting the biggest meal plan that they yeah. offer. Um, but we're going to take a look at it because he can change after a semester. So one of the things we'll be doing is, so did you use all three swipes every single day? Or did right. you find that you really didn't go to breakfast and then you really ultimately only went to the dining hall twice in a day. So can we eliminate that third visit to the dining hall? And if he's using it, awesome. I'm, I'm more than happy for him to have it. But if he's not using it, we want to evaluate and take that away, right? So things like that feel well, like little and, things. And having your son be mindful of, I do have three swipes a day, so I don't need to uh, go out to get food someplace else that is not paid for. Yes. Uh, at this time, which is, you know, challenging. But maybe if you think about this as a, this can be a special treat for me with some friends once in a while, but that should not be my mainstay. Right. And, you know, one of the things that um, that I we've agreed on for my son is he'll earn all his spending money. So over the course of this summer and then during the school year, that's going to be on him. So I can take money that I would maybe normally be giving to him for these little things right. and put that to paying for school. Same with my grocery bill is astronomical. Right. That money, <laughs> that money I'm saving is going to go. I'm not, it's not like I'm not spending the money anymore, right. but I'm just spending it differently. And in this case, it's going to the meal plan, but that's money I don't have to then worry about accounting for in my daily spending of my own life. And that's a perfect that's a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about. Look at those ways that you can reduce your borrowing in general. And that's one way, right? Mm -hmm. If he's covering his spending money and you're taking the grocery money, that inevitably is $100 a week higher just because of him at least. Yes. Uh, at that, least. that right there is $500 a month that you can take and pay towards college, reducing your borrowing by $6,000 a year. Right. Which is huge when you think about it huge. that way. Right. I mean, yeah. especially with increasing interest rates, right. it's going to be even more money than that by the time he graduates. So right. I'm trying. I am doing my do very breaking best. News? Do you want oh, to know do? the breaking news? We Let's do. have the breaking news. And this okay. is real. This is real. So uh, interest rates uh, next year, they are going up. So for undergraduate federal direct uh, Stafford loans, uh, 4.993, which is up from 3.734. So up about, you know, one and a quarter points. Uh, for uh, graduate student loans, for direct uh, Stafford loans for graduate students, 6.543, which is up once again about a point and a quarter. And then the Parent PLUS loans, so Federal Direct Parent PLUS loans, these are the most expensive. Uh, it's 7.543, which is up once again about one and a quarter points. So, you know, about what we were expecting. Now, still, I will look at this and say to parents, remember when you were borrowing, mm -hmm. uh, a federal student loan was probably not less than 5%. So this is a, they're still reasonable rates for these, the student loans, not outstanding, not, you know, not record lows, um, but they're not as bad as they once were. 
Uh, so once again, if you're comparing borrowing versus spending, it's something to consider. All right. Really important news. And I'm glad we were able to share it. Last question I have for you today. You mentioned you were you were talking about 529 plans a little bit earlier, and you mentioned something about if you had it in an age-based plan or but I, I think this that this relates to that. Are there things you recommend families do with the underlying investments in their 529 plan to protect them as much as possible against these rising rates? So it's tough to think about what to do right now, because right now, if you are in, if you have a 529 plan that has been relatively volatile, meaning that your underlying investments were stock-based options and things like that, you're probably looking at it right now and saying, geez, this is, I took such a hit and I'm feeling it and it pains me to look at. So to suddenly shift uh, and move to a very conservative option, uh, you're saying, well, can I do that and really take the 30% hit that I took? Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that this just shows the underlying importance of having maybe investments that are automatically timed if you are not going to do so yourself to change over time. So for those who are out there who are savers and maybe have children not as close to college, consider this. Uh, you, you think the stock market is going to continue going up and everything's going to be great. But sometimes things happen, and this last year has shown uh, just how things happen. It had been great for a long time, uh, and people wanted to ride that wave, and now they're feeling the hurt if they didn't uh, change uh, change their investment options at the right time. So if you took a big hit, the question is, are you willing to take that hit now uh, and move it over to something conservative and look at your overall spending for the next four years? Or are you saying, I'm willing to go lower or I'm willing to take the risk to possibly go higher. That's, you know, it's it's the gamble. It's the gamble that you have when you're playing with a child's educational money. Right. And so for those families who are not, who don't have seniors, your advice is you probably want to have it automated so that it's going to adjust as your child gets closer to the age and gets a little more, more conservative when you're getting ready to start paying for college. For folks who are not going to do it on their own and who have some risk adverseness, Mm -hmm. uh, that is certainly something that takes the the play out of your hands and moves it into somebody who's paid to do that, essentially. Okay, awesome. Alex, as always, really great advice and information. Um, I use these sessions as <laughs> planning for my own situation, so right. I find them particularly valuable. So thank you so much for being here today. I was glad to do it. Thanks, Beth. All right. Um, we are going to, again, take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about recommendation letters. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, We are talking about recommendation letters. And joining me for this segment is my colleague, Michael Yeager, who is a former admissions officer at Wheaton and St. Lawrence, but also, and I think particularly relevant for today, a former college counselor at the Baldwin School of Puerto Rico and Fort Worth Country Day. So he has a lot more insight, I think, than just the admission side on recommendation letters. Hi, Michael. Hi, how you doing? Good, thanks. And thanks for joining us on this today because um, this is going to be airing next week. So late May, not all students are still in school. Uh, We just talked to Tova earlier, who's down in Georgia, and they are actually already out of school for the school year, which blows my New England mind because our kids are still staring down the barrel of another six weeks in school. Um, but, uh, but when I want to talk about recommendation letters and for our juniors, I think this is particularly important and something for them to be thinking about. Um, and let me start with, uh, you know, we wanted to talk about asking for them, but I want to back up a little bit and, and talk a little about what, what's the purpose of the recommendation letter, um, from, from your perspective. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to write letters for every student. In my case, though, being at a, at a private school. And so it was great to be able to provide more detail, especially for some students. I think recommendation letters are critical because there's a lot more to the story than, uh, than a teacher may know. Um, and even the teachers provide that great insight of that day-to-day experience with a student, but also the counselors can provide some of that bigger context, like the were there family things going on that impacted grades? Were there, you know, health-related issues? Um, you know, is this a student who's just a good sibling? There's a lot of, of different things, I think, that, that can be brought to the table through recommendation letters that colleges really appreciate and value. They want not only great students, but they want great citizens that are going to be in their campus community. I think for a lot of students, recommendation letters can bring that extra oomph to their application. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I I thought they were so important when I was working at Penn, and I think they're really valuable to the students I work with on the other side of the desk. But here's a question. Do all colleges require teacher recommendations? No. Um, there there are a few places where, you know, if, if asking for a recommendation letter is going to create a massive amount of anxiety or if there are other things in your life that you feel like you want to apply to specific schools that that it's not required, you can definitely find them. I was just reading an article in the Chronicle the other day, just talking about the value of recommendation letters in general. And I think that's up to each institution as far as how much weight they want to put on recommendation letters. Does it, you know, does it provide something that's specifically valuable to what that institution is looking for? And so if, if your student who's out there looking for places that don't require them, they exist. Um, obviously the UC system would be the biggest one. And then there are other schools that are out there that, that don't necessarily require them. Yeah, I would say, um, for my son's application process, uh, almost none of the schools he applied to required a teacher recommendation. So they did require a counselor recommendation, but not a teacher recommendation. So my experience has been the bigger state schools 
not all of them, but many of them will not require those because I just they're not staffed to read them. I think that's what it ultimately comes down to, right? Not that they don't want more insight, but they just don't have the capacity to take in more insight and process it in a way that's useful in their in the way that they do admissions at those schools. Yeah, and even smaller schools, you know, reading through two or three or five recommendation letters can be really taxing on an admission office that's already strained, depending on where they are in the cycle and how application numbers are looking in that particular year. And so I can definitely see a lot of institutions just not having the the bandwidth or the capacity to place any kind of value on letters. Yeah, I will. And even, you know, when I was working at Penn, I was reading the main essay. There was a Y Penn essay at the time that I was there. There were two short answers. We required a counselor letter. We required two teacher letters. That's a lot to read. And then you mentioned the two, three, or five. I will tell you, if a student submitted five letters of recommendation, uh, I did not read five letters of recommendation. And I also usually would make a mark like submitted five letters of recommendation. And that was not a woohoo, an excited mark. That was a what were they thinking kind of mark. But we could touch on that in, uh, in a, a little later in our segment today. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about, okay, you're applying to some colleges that do require teacher recommendations. What are your thoughts on how do you decide who to ask to write these for you? Yeah, I, the, the biggest thing that I always steer students towards is who do you feel like is going to write the best letter on your yes. behalf? It may not be, you know, the class that you have the, the hundred or the A plus in. It may not be, you know, it might be the class you're doing the worst in because you've, you've shown up and you've put in the extra work and that teacher knows you very, very well. Um, but really it's about how well the, the teacher can craft your story and how well they are as a writer. And I think that's hard to discern for a lot of students, but you can tell who's, you know, who comes to class every day organized, who writes well as a teacher when they're responding to to your work. And so I think there is, there's definitely some strategy in thinking of who's going to write the best letter. There are also going to be times where you, you have to look if you're looking into STEM fields and they're requiring, you know, someone from a math or a science uh, course to write one of the letters. That's going to be something that comes into your equation. But for the most part, it's who's going to write the best letter on my behalf. Yeah, it's just literally as simple as that. And I would go so far as to say it's almost more more about who will write the best letter in terms of their thoughts on me than that the writing itself is so brilliant. And I agree, a, a well-written letter is always lovely, but I will take the... Maybe it's not the the teacher's first language, but they are super impressed by this kid and that comes across in the writing. I'll take that any day over the really well-read, damning with faint praise letter that is sort of like has not a whole lot to say about the student themselves and therefore feels pretty generic to me. So. Yeah, if you can, I mean, if you can sense the heart behind the letter as, you know, as an application reviewer, that's way more valuable than, you know, a fancy cut and paste, something that, you know, an English teacher or history teacher has done, you know, 40 or 50 times in a season. And, and you're seeing pieces of that letter in, as a reviewer five or six times because you're, you're looking at, you know, multiple students from that particular school. And so I think that does devalue some of the letters that come out and, and even if, like you said, if it's not as well crafted, but it's coming from heart and it, it provides some good points. And, and as far as what the student's background and preparation is, that's going to be super helpful. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so you mentioned in passing, if you're applying to some STEM schools, they might require a math or a science. Any other um, any other thoughts that you have on how important is it to have variety in who's writing the letters? Um, establishing first that baseline that both Michael and I just very clearly said, stated, which is go for the good letter. That's first. So assuming you've got a few different choices for the good letter, any other guidelines that you would offer? I mean, I'm okay if a student wants to have, you know, like two STEM faculty from high school as part of their application. Great. If, if they can describe who you are as a student, awesome. If you wanted to have some variety, if you wanted to add a world language um, faculty member, or if you wanted to add someone in the humanities or English, that's great too. I don't, I never put a big premium on where the letters had to come from as a school counselor, just that they, they needed to choose wisely about who they were selecting um, and make sure that their narrative was being told through that, that teacher. Yeah, I think I completely agree with you. I guess the only thing I would say, and, and again, I would go back to best letter takes precedence, but if you can avoid having two history teachers write for you, right, or two English teachers, but other than that, I think it's perfectly fine if you've got an English and a history teacher or a physics and a math teacher, go, go for the good letter. That is always going to be of paramount importance. Um, all right, so we've, we've talked about who you should ask. When do you suggest students ask for these letters? I usually encourage students right after spring break. Faculty tend to be in a pretty good mood and everyone's kind of geared up for the, the end of the year. I think definitely before the end of junior year, I, would, I always encourage my students to make at least one request um, because there are going to be times over the next month where teachers are finishing up the year too. So, you know, if they already had APs and now you have this, this couple of weeks where there's not a whole lot going on, some teachers will actually want to jump ahead and start writing, especially for students they know who are applying early, um, mm -hmm. just so they can clear a little bit from their plate for the next year, for the summer. Um, so at some point before students leave campus junior year is a great time to put in that request and make sure that, that a teacher knows that I usually encourage students to let the teacher know that they're applying early so so that they can prioritize it. And it's one less thing they have to worry about as a senior coming back um, when they're already going to be working on essays and maybe finalizing standardized testing and you know juggling courses if they're looking at something for at drop. So, um, so to have that one piece kind of already put to rest is, is just a little peace of mind for some seniors. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. Um, the other thing that I've seen happen sometimes when students don't ask soon enough is the teacher has a cap on the number of letters they're willing to write. And so they're going to write 10. And if you're not in there, then you're out of luck. Um, I, I, I kind of agree with the teachers on that front. If they're the type of teacher that's going to get asked by a lot of students to write a letter, on the other hand, it sort of feels like, really? Could you not like, especially if you're a popular teacher, but um, avoid it all and just ask early. And for those students who are already out of school, what I would suggest is emailing your teacher. Um, either through the school system or if you have their email because you've connected with them on assignments, shoot them an email. It's nothing that you're asking them to do immediately, but you kind of just want to get in there and, and let them know you are hoping that they will write on your behalf. Um, and while, actually, you, mm -hmm. while a lot of the great stuff that you did throughout the year is still fresh, I mean, teachers 
teachers' memories wane a little bit over the summer too. Just like it takes students a while to get back into the rhythm when they get back in the fall. I mean, for a teacher, they you know they're going to remember now some of the projects that you turned in, some of the amazing things that you said in the classroom. And so, definitely, if they've already walked out the door in email at this point, you know, we've been living in the virtual world for quite a while now. I think. It used to be you would you would make this request in person, you know, mm-hmm. and and you would deliver a resume and you would talk about the great things that you learned from them in class and pump their tires a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I think an email at this phase is is more than okay. And so that actually though brings up then my next question, which is, how do you ask? So you you just shared the ideal. You go in person, um, but either way, what are the things that you recommend a student do when they're asking the teacher to write on their behalf? Yeah, I think I still um, you know I like the traditional model of you know catching them after class or before class and just asking them for a few minutes and explain to them you know I've really enjoyed your class. Uh, these are the reasons why I would love for you to write a positive recommendation letter for me for college. And so a lot of teachers know this is coming too, and it's not going to be a a big surprise to them. And some of them, honestly, from the high school side, I remember some teachers were just waiting for some students to ask them like it was the prom, you know, they, they wanted to write this particular student's letter because they were so excited to do it. And so, um, yeah, just having that direct conversation with them that, you know, you're excited to apply to college. You've really learned a lot from their class. Give them a little bit more detail if you can. And some of that can come in writing a little bit later on. Uh, they may ask you for an activity sheet. If they are a teacher that gets a lot of letters, I've had teachers in the past who like to make it a little bit more complicated. So they would create, you know, a number of questions and mm-hmm. kind of make you jump through all these hoops so that you could be one of those people that, that they would consider writing a letter on. And it safeguarded them from getting all those last minute requests because, you weren't going to be able to produce what they were looking for in a short period of time where it was going to right. be too much of a pain and you were going to choose the, the path of least resistance. So, yeah, I think the traditional request or now via email, you know, via Zoom, anything where you can have that conversation with a teacher would be the way to go. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Um And we did touch on, or I touched on how much I disliked a lot of extra letters of recommendation uh, earlier. Uh, Very quickly, we have about a minute. In terms of extra letters, who, if if a student is determined that they want to submit one, any advice on who make the best extra letter writers? It's, for me, it has to be someone, it's an entirely new perspective it has to be someone that's impactful that they've known for a long time. That's going to add some significant value to the application. So maybe it's a service organization that they worked with, or if they've been doing athletics, a coach or dance or equestrian, someone that they worked with at the stable, someone who they have spent a lot, a lot of time with and knows them outside of the classroom really well, or maybe has an academic perspective of them, but it really needs to be something that's added value beyond the one or two teachers and the counselor that are already going to be sitting in that application. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think those are great examples of who should write and an example of probably who shouldn't write. It's a family friend who knows you, but that's, you know, if if, if there isn't a connection beyond just the family relationship, that's not a great letter of recommendation because all they can really comment on is your personality and you don't have any connection to the institution and you're not overseeing the student in any way. I get questions about that from time to time. So I want to throw out there that that's not a great idea for an extra letter. Um, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. It's always nice to have the counselor perspective alongside the ex-admissions officer perspective. Um, okay, really quickly, next week, Sally is here. She's hosting. Um, we're talking about cutting back on some of those things that students are really involved in in order to improve mental health. And we're also going to be answering your questions. So if you have questions for us, send them to us, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. These are all places where you can submit your questions to us. And don't forget, we are here every week um, at 3 p.m. Eastern and 1% 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.